Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Product Innovation Show, where we talk about all the things that prevent you from shipping a good product. And today I have another guest, Radhika Dutt, who is an author of Radical Product Thinking, her new book. Um, it's the new mindset for innovating smarter. She's an MIT grad with a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering, speaks nine languages, currently learning her 10th, believe it or not. She's an entrepreneur and product leader. Radhika, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm happy to be here. Do you do you really hate Google Translate? <laughs> I learned in nine languages in the tenth. Uh, it's just I've lived on so many different continents and so many countries, and it's, just languages has been a passion because you get to learn cultures through languages. Right. So, uh, what is the tenth language you're learning? Uh, I'm working on Mandarin. Mandarin. So how many, uh, how, what's the last one that you learned? I think the last one I learned was uh, probably Italian. So my husband's Italian and so we speak Italian at home. But uh, yeah, that's, I guess, always uh, one that's always in progress. <laughs> how do you, and I'm, uh, we got to get to product, I promise. Uh, <laughs> how much time, how much time do you feel like it takes you to, from zero to having a decent ability to speak and communicate? Uh, when you're learning the new language, like let's say if, if Mandarin in this example. Oh, you know, what's interesting is it completely depends on the teacher. So uh, when I learned Spanish, um, it took me about six months. Uh, learning Italian from my husband at the time, boyfriend, again, it was about six months. Um, but like it totally depends on whether you're doing full immersion or you're doing one lesson a week. One lesson a week, you never learn at all. So how many, how many, uh, like, do, do you have to do like to, you know, to do a six to from six months to understand something decent every day, a couple of hours? Uh, well, six months to be able to have a conversation with a friend, not business conversations, but oh, like, of course. yeah, conversation, yeah. Um, so yeah, it takes about, um, yeah, I'd say like everyday exposure. Right. And you lived, um, in Singapore, you you relatively recently came back to Boston, where where you live. You you lived in Singapore for two and a half years. How was it? Oh, it was brilliant. Well, first of all, it's a tropical paradise. So if you like warm weather, that's the place to go. If you don't, maybe it's not. Uh, but I think more than anything, as someone who builds products and uh, who's been thinking about product thinking, Singapore is just such an amazing fountain of uh, inspiration. The whole country mm. is built like a product. Uh, yeah, we we did speak about that. I I, I should go because it's so warm and and you 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 made a great pitch. Um, so you participated in four acquisitions, uh, two of which were the comp companies that you that you founded. When you are running product, you're a product leader. What do you do when the acquisition happens? What do you need to do to make sure that uh, it goes as well as it could go? I think the biggest thing is figuring out how your product fits within larger companies' portfolio and how do you make sure that there is enough buy-in in the mothership for your product and how it fits in. Because one of the biggest risks is, you know, the mothership doesn't see enough value or that uh, they don't understand how to sell it, etc. Uh, and so it's really that integration process to make sure that you become part of that uh, mothership in an effective way. Mm, right. Well, on that note, let's talk about your book. Uh, and you know what's interesting about your book? I uh, read it and um, your sub headlines. 
there's this there's this medical theme or this uh, this theme from from with its terms from medicine you call well the books like product diseases for example and then you have syndrome swelling disorder uh complex i like how did that like what was the idea to to do that um well i think you know, whenever we are trying to solve a problem, uh, we have to start with understanding what exactly um, is happening. We have to get to root cause. Uh, even the name radical, you know, this is something where in medical terminology, uh, a radical is really something that gets to the fundamental uh, problem. And so, yes, medical the terminology has sort of floated in throughout uh, radical product thinking. I guess part of it is that my background is my, that my mom is a doctor. This has always sort of floated in my head. But I think there are so many parallels. Uh, what I've also realized, aside from product diseases and kind of being able to diagnose them so that we can then cure them, um, aside from that, like even the idea of being a product manager uh, you know, we are solving someone's problem. Our role is much like a doctor where I see a problem right. in a patient and I'm prescribing my product to fix that problem. And that leads to this idea of Hippocratic Oath of uh, product. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. Like there is this medical theme throughout. And what's funny is I was giving a talk and at the end of the talk, they coined the term, you know what? You should be called the product doctor. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I'm, true. I'm rolling with that title now. <laughs> Well, you know, the with it, I, I'm, uh, I'm the marketer in me said, well, that's brilliant. And everybody's product, this product, that, and you're coming up with, uh, uh, well, first of all, different ideas to to product, which we'll talk about. But the other part is the the positioning is different. It's calling it like you coming from a different industry. Exactly. What I really wanted to uh, bring about is a change in mindset in terms of how we think about product. I think for me, fundamentally, the way I think differently about product is that your product is not just hardware or software. Anything that you're doing can be a product if it's your mechanism to create change in the world. And so your product, to me, the definition of product is that it's your mechanism, this constantly improving mechanism to create change that you want to see. Um, and that means that whether you're a freelancer working in government, a nonprofit, a high tech startup, it doesn't matter. All of these can be products. Even an activist, uh, a human rights activist is, has a product and that's how they're creating change in the world. Well, that's a great way to think about it because uh, uh, that, that, that the wide perspective on, on product really helps you to, I guess, to learn as much as you can. So you're not just focusing on this one uh, software part, you actually able to see product uh, in Singapore as a country or in literally everything else uh, and and then just learn something from from that. You're right. It's it's definitely about learning. But I think to me, even more importantly, once you define it as a product, then the key thing is we can actually be very systematic in how we build that product. And that to me is what's truly empowering, that we can start with a clear vision for change and then systematically translate that vision step by step into everyday activities. And therein lies the power of radical product thinking that, you know, we can uh, be systematic about building world changing products as opposed to what we've learned so far, which is, oh, let's just throw things in the market, see what works, keep iterating and pivoting, and we'll figure out what, uh, what, what wins. Well, and um, I mean, every product leader has a vision. Uh, presentation that they do it looks really great they have a uh, they have a little party or whatever they would call uh, but 
that's not often is translated into the product, into the customers, into the company. What are they doing or what are they not doing, in your opinion, for to, yeah. to translate that? In fact, you know, what you just said, that is kind of the fundamental issue that leads to product diseases, where there is a break in the chain somewhere along the lines going all the way from vision down to your everyday actions. Whenever that break in the chain happens, that's where you see product diseases emerge. Where is the break in the chain? Very often it starts right at the vision itself and how we define a vision. Because until now, what we've learned is that a good vision is something that's a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. You know, if you've ever done a VC pitch, that's the first question that you're asked, like, what's your BHAG? Yeah. Um, and so that is the fundamental problem that where vision statements go wrong. It turns out that you shouldn't think about your vision as a BHAG or this aspirational goal. Um, in fact, a good vision is one where it's not about yourself at all. Uh, it's about a problem that you want to see solved in the world to the point where if you were to take yourself out of that picture altogether, you would still be happy to see that problem solved. Um, and, and we can go into what a good vision is, but that's kind of the starting point where it's very detailed. And then we have to translate that into a strategy, priorities, how you measure success, um, and what that means for your tactical activities. And you talked about the fact that there is not enough vision in day-to-day. -day. Like, as a product manager, I'm showing up to work every day. How do I still get a feel for that vision, a touch of the vision? Um, obviously, you're in the product, you're in the, in the building uh, process, but like, how do you, what do you need to do to, to still keep a, one finger, at least, on that vision as a PM, as as uh, a team member. Yeah, I think so far vision statements tend to be like, you know, to be the leader in blah, blah. Uh, I was at a company and the vision statement was to reinvent uh, warehouse automation. Um, my own vision in the first startup used to be revolutionizing wireless. Those are all like, honestly, not very useful vision statements. And so as a product manager, what you want is a detailed vision that answers five questions. It's the who, what, why, when, how questions. So which is, whose world are you trying to change? This can't be everybody. Um, you have to be very specific about a group of people. Uh, so it can't right. just be consumers or women, like that's still an entirely right. too big a category. Uh, the second question is, what exactly is their problem? Uh, meaning, what does their world look like? Um, why, and, and how are they solving that problem today? The third question, which is probably the most important one to me, is why does that world need changing? Meaning, why is the status quo completely unacceptable? And if we cannot answer this question of why is the status quo unacceptable, maybe there's no reason for the product to even exist. Yeah. Sorry, I'll just go through these two. Uh, the fourth is, um, when will you know that you've arrived? Meaning, what does the world look like when you can say mission accomplished? And then finally, how will you bring that about? And this is finally when you can talk about your product or um, your technology or your approach. It, it seems similar, um, and I have not worked as a product manager. It seems similar to a user story, just a, a little bit above, a little bit higher level, but kind of similar to a user story, but obviously a lot more specific than be a leader in X. 
Exactly. But you're right. I think in many ways it is like a user story, but it's like a user story for your entire product. Um, and, you know, getting answers to these questions of who, what, why, when and how, it's incredibly hard. Like you realize that sometimes you don't always know the answers to these questions, that to be able to answer this question of, you know, what exactly is their problem and what are they doing today? That requires user research very often. You have to actually have gone and observed the answers to these questions to be able to answer this accurately. Even the starting question of whose world are you trying to change, right? Mm -hmm. Like very often we have been trained for so long that our market needs to be as large as possible. And we're tempted to say, you know, really expand it. And I love how my publicist put it. So I'm going to like uh, use her words. She says, you know, instead of talking about who are all the people who are going to benefit from your product? Think about who has the most urgent need for it. And that's how you can define the who question. Yeah, yeah it's a good way. I mean, obviously, because you need whatever the easiest option is to attract the users uh, besides the, the ads and any other ways in product, you will want to take that people who actually have a certain need right now. Exactly. And I think very often we're afraid to take this step of being so detailed about a vision because we say well you know but that means that this vision is only going to be valid for a short amount of time and the reality is that is okay in fact our whole expectation that our vision is unchanging is crazy right if we think about the fact yes. that market keeps evolving your product is also evolving with the market like your vision should be changing that you know periodically especially if you're an early stage startup you really should be looking at that vision statement every month because you might have honestly learned something that invalidates your entire vision. Um, if you're even a mature company, there are events like COVID which completely upend what your product is what is doing in the market, right? So at least every six months or one year, you should just go back and check like, are the answers to this who, what, why, when, how questions actually valid? Um, and one thing that I've noticed is we tend to get very attached to the words that we use in the vision. And this is why, by the way, in the book um, and uh, also on the Radical Product Thinking website, there's this toolkit that um, we created and it has a fill in the blank statement so that you don't get attached to the words in answering the who, what, when, how questions. You can just focus on the profound questions themselves rather than the wording and playing vision bingo. And that really helps create that alignment and the ease of writing this vision without like spending you know half a day in an offsite to do it. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So if let's say, I mean, hard, sometimes super hard to answer, like you said, those questions, what do you, you obviously do the market research, you talk to the people, but what else should you do uh, to, to answer that question? Uh, do you put a hypothesis in? Maybe there's some degree of guess. Uh, maybe it's something else that you that you do at first to put that this is our vision v1 so to say yeah i think the the vision we should always think about it as a hypothesis it's our best get a guess at any given time but one good test for your vision right is when you write this vision actually you should be able to share this with your customers you should be able to present this to your customers and say, you know, this is what we think is the vision. This is why we think the status quo is unacceptable and see what reaction you get. Like if you've written a good vision that res resonates with customers, then you know you're onto something. Um, 
if on the other hand this really doesn't resonate with customers you can go back and kind of address it uh, but that's a really good starting point on a test i was going to ask you what's your take on steve jobs which is uh no market testing not talking to users well this is this we know the best versus let's just only focus on the user testing See, actually, that is the biggest myth that they did not do user testing. So they did a lot of user research and absolutely did user testing. What he was specifically saying is that you cannot ask users what they want. We have to deeply understand their need as opposed to asking them what they want. Right. And therein lies the difference. I think when we um, when we think about uh, customer feedback, the analogy I like to give is it's like being in a car and rolling down your windows to ask someone for directions. You have to know where you want to go before you can ask someone for directions. Uh, very often we think about customer feedback as, you know, we want to delight customers. And so we're asking them, you know, what they want. And that part is what Steve Jobs was saying. That doesn't work. You have to know where you're going and then you can ask for directions to see if you're heading in that right direction. And I think that's how we can use customer feedback. Right. Basically, just kind of translating what you said to to one of the Steve's, I guess, examples when they were developing an iPhone, for example, everybody is trying to use one device. They don't want to use a phone and an MP3 player. As an example, 2006, 2005, uh, we people are going in that direction. That's pretty clear. We talk to people. They don't know what it is, though. They don't know what what this one thing is. Well, we have an idea, but we, we know the direction that people are going. Exactly, exactly. And then you can test, you know, is that direction that we defined and that destination, is that actually working for users? And uh, so you can't expect users to come up with that end state and say, oh, come up with the iPhone. It's more that if you have this idea in your mind that, oh, it could be this one device that does this and this and, oh, you can interact with it using your fingers, then you can present that to users and say, hey, you know, try using this. What do you think? Like, am I heading in the right direction? And that works. Exactly. Uh, nobody wants a faster horse, at least not uh, not anymore. Um, product diseases. What what are we what are we looking at if we look at the product diseases you've outlined in the book? I think you have seven. Uh, what are those? How do we think should think about those? Yeah. So what I found is right in the last decade we've gotten so focused on being iteration led because we have methodologies like lean, agile, all of these tell us you know how we can iterate fast and the emphasis has been on iterating fast um, and so what has happened as a result is we've just focused on doing those iterations and being able to iterate fast what has been missing is this very clear vision and strategy that drives those iterations and when that happens is where we see those product diseases that break in the chain as i was mentioning and so product diseases i'll give you a few examples um, the first one that i've come across uh, and i mentioned earlier how our vision in my first startup was revolutionizing wireless right. That was the foundation of the disease uh, hero syndrome. So hero syndrome is where we're focused on scale, on go big or go home, uh, to the point where you know we forget what is it that we're actually solving in the world. Uh, and we definitely caught hero syndrome in that first startup. Um, another example that is so common, not just in startups, especially so, but also in big companies, is pivotitis. So pivotitis is what Back happens. Back to medical terms, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So pivotitis is what happens where, you know, we keep 
switching directions, trying to find our way, where we don't have a clear strategy, so we try one strategy after another. Um, I think the one example of pivotitis that I've come across is, um, you know, I was heading up marketing at a startup, and uh, we were trying to be the next visa of the world. So uh, we realized, though, that actually that is a really hard problem to solve because you have to both win consumers and merchants. And so we said after some time, like, oh, you know what, we'll pivot to uh, becoming a loyalty solutions provider for merchants. But then after like a month, we said, you know what, that's a really crowded market. So then we pivoted to becoming a credit solutions provider for merchants. And as the head of marketing, honestly, I just didn't even know at some point what I was asking people to sign up for on the website anymore. Um, and that is an example of pivotitis, right? That's a good, that's a very common thing. I mean, honestly, I've seen so many, as, as obviously as you, like so many startups doing that thing. Uh, and and it's, it is an admittedly quite a difficult thing uh, or, or challenge. At what point do you give up uh, or keep going? Uh, and I think that's what you're trying to say, right, in, in, in that sense. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not saying pivoting is bad altogether, but what happens is we kind of pivot directions without really defining what did we learn, what are we going to do next, and why are we doing that? And so if I go back to this vision that I talked about, right, that uh, fill in the blank statement that describes your who, what, why, when, and how, you know, if you're deciding that you need to pivot, hold up that vision statement and say, okay, here's what we learned is wrong about what we wrote to these answers. Here's what we think is the next hypothesis that we have. And to fit and, and to test this next hypothesis, here's what we're pivoting to. That in itself, right, is a very deliberate pivot where you're bringing the whole team with you on the journey. Now, it, it would, as the head of marketing, for example, I would now know, okay, here's the new group of people I'm targeting. Mm -hmm. Here is why we're targeting them and what we're going to say to them. Like all of this um, pivoting just without that sort of clarity is where you start to lose people and it, it's demoting, demotivating for teams and it's confusing for customers. How did you pivot with the visa uh, visa example that you just described? Obviously, you did it for a month. And then after that, do you, do you define we're going to try to be a loyalty loyalty partner, loyalty company? And then do you, do you define define the vision and define the kind of metrics you want to hit or, or, or not quite? I think it is really useful to go through that whole process, right, of what is the metrics that you want to hit, etc. But in that particular um, example, I think the first step is you've redefined what your vision is. But sometimes, you know, you don't even know what are the right metrics that you should be hitting. So it's not so much of setting targets. Mm -hmm. It's more of a question of how will you know if your approach is working? Um, and Which so is a great question, which is probably the most one of the most important things which is more important than setting targets in fact um, and so what you need is a vision but then translating that vision into a strategy so what i mean by strategy is where we answer four questions um, and in the radical product thinking way the mnemonic which is easy to remember is radical or rdcl um, so r is for real pain points so meaning you know mm -hmm. what is the pain that makes someone comes come to your product the d is for design meaning what is your solution that solves that pain the C is for capabilities, uh, which is what's your special sauce, uh, the infrastructure, partnerships, etc., that allows you to deliver on that design. 
And then finally, L is the logistics, which is how will you bring the solution to the customer? And this is basically where we often forget this part. We leave it as an afterthought for the end. This is where you think about your pricing, your sales channels, how you support your product, train users, etc. Very often we think, oh, I'll first build a product, then I'll think of uh, how I'll support it or how I'll monetize it. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Go on. No, no, keep going. Keep going. Okay. So... Um, when you are thinking about how will I measure success, the idea is for every element of your RDCL that you've defined, you can then treat that as a hypothesis. Each of those elements of your RDCL that you've defined are hypotheses, and you can decide what metrics will help me validate if this approach is working or not. And that part is really helpful to measure uh, so that you can then say, okay, I feel like this is not working and here's why we need to pivot. So going through the cycle of what have we learned from the vision? How is our strategy changing? And as a result, like how will we measure whether the strategy is working really helps you define what your iteration is going to look like and brings people with you on the journey. And honestly, like people will think, oh my gosh, this is going to take me so long. I don't have time for strategy. I just want to execute and figure it out. Okay, and, common. <laughs> exactly. And this is where, you know, it, it, execution feels like you're on this galloping horse. It feels wonderful and thrilling. It feels like you're going somewhere, even if you're going in the wrong direction. Or in circles. Oh, we're going faster. But <laughs> Exactly. And so this is why it's so important to take a step back. And it doesn't take long to answer these questions. At least you're kind of setting the direction, then you can go off galloping. And and, and that would be qualitative and quantitative data, right? Qualt and quant, like it's, it's, it's both. Exactly. And it helps you value the uh, qualitative data as well when you're thinking about this in terms of a strategy being a hypothesis and how will you try it, how will you know if it's working. Right. Um, quick thought from you, Radhika. Uh, dangers of following one framework. There are people, there are a lot of people who would find one ultimate, quote unquote, ultimate framework. They would, be, they would follow it to the T. I think rather than frameworks, right, I wrote this book thinking about this as a philosophy. What I really want us to do, and this is where I think is the danger with frameworks, is very often with frameworks, we're just giving people tools and like a physics formula. You know, I tell you, this is how you calculate this particular answer, just use the formula F equals mass times acceleration, right? right? But that's instead of just giving you this formula, which only applies under certain conditions, what we really want is deriving things from first principles, like really understanding what we're doing. So I look at frameworks as giving people formulas, and this is the philosophy behind it. So my book is more about sharing that philosophy so that we know why we're doing what we're doing and give, and we build an intuition for product as opposed to using frameworks to follow a recipe. This gives you kind of the tastes and ideas of how you're going to put things together. And um, we're almost out of time, but this is brilliant. Where is everybody can find a book? Where, where, where do they get it? If you're in the US, you can get a book from Amazon, Barnes and Noble or any local bookstore. Uh, if you're international, uh, you can get it from Book Depository, which uh, has free shipping to most countries. Last question. Uh, and it's, well, let's see if you have an answer. Your most hated product. Uh, this is a bonus question. And that could be anything, any kind of product that you came across. 
This is a particularly hard question to answer. There are just so many choices. <laughs> that, that's why it's the last one. But okay, before I answer this, maybe I'll say why there there's such a wide choice. This is because so many of our products create collateral damage to society, what I call digital <laughs> pollution. And I think we can talk about this on a whole different podcast. We should. And I think what happens is, you know, when we're iteration led, just optimizing for metrics, we often forget what our products do to uh, society. There are some big polluters, just like in environmental pollution, you know, you have the oil giants, you have some big tech products like you have Facebook and uh, so on that uh, create digital pollution. But the reality is that every one of us in our products creates some level of collateral damage. Um, so I can give you a couple of examples rather than talking about which product I hate the most. Maybe I'll share a couple of examples of how we create this digital pollution. Uh, oh, that was that was supposed to be just a fun question, but no, no, for sure. Uh, do, do your talk talk about that because I know it's a big part of the book which we didn't cover, and then uh, and then we'll uh, then we'll do we'll do the fun part. You are really holding me to the thing of the worst product. I'm, I'm very curious. I want to see what you're going to say. It's a digital pollution. Well, um, actually, we will, let's save that for the next podcast. <laughs> but okay, but give, I will not give, give, the, give the listeners a preview, Radhika, like for digital pollution. I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but what, what should they expect us to talk about? Yeah, so... You know, just like in environmental pollution, we've learned to identify air pollution, soil pollution, etc. We need to learn to identify how we're creating digital pollution. And there are five types that I talk about in the book. So it's um, the first is creating more inequality in society. Uh, the second is uh, creating ideological polarization, um, eroding uh, privacy, uh, eroding the information ecosystem. Uh, and the last one is hijacking attention. These are five types of pollution that we'll get into in a future one. But if we look at uh, an, uh, a, a digital giant like Facebook, they do all of the above. Um, and maybe one other product that I'll mention is a math game called Prodigy, um, which uh, you know creates inequality, for example, in how kids learn math. Um, mm -hmm. So those are a couple of um, examples of just maybe at big levels or small levels that we're all creating pollution. And I don't mean to pick on these examples just as a few companies, because the reality is we're all creating digital pollution to some extent. And each of us has the responsibility to think about how we can minimize that digital foot footprint. Oh, we have to pick somebody to, <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> well, okay. So, so, so if you, uh, maybe you could talk, maybe you can name uh, one weird product that you come across that just like, Ooh, I don't understand. What is this thing? <laughs> That one I can share. I was walking by in Singapore and I see this big vending machine uh, and it's salmon, Norwegian salmon that you can get from this machine and they call it the salmon ATM. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I thought this was the weirdest product. Like who has this desperate need for salmon? Let me go get to this ATM and get salmon. <laughs> well, you know, you're in Asia. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> Probably my favorite part of this whole, of this whole, of these examples. Radhika, well, this was a lot of fun. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing all uh, this. Uh, we are definitely going to do this part two. Uh, and you guys know where to find the book. It's on, um, on Amazon. We're going to put all the links for you for international. And if you're in the United States or in Canada, and we'll be back with you with Radhika for part two for this conversation. Mm -hmm.